Welcome to Life Outside of Sport, where we'll be diving in and exploring what happens once the game is over. My name's Lewis Harrington, PGA golf professional. I'll be joined, as always, by Dean Hammond, former Premier League footballer, and co-founder and creator, Liam DC. Liam, how are we? All good? All good. Looking forward to speaking to Gary. It was a great read. So looking forward to uh, finding out who these people are behind these chapters. Absolutely. Likewise. And as, we, uh, as we've had a lot of fun with over the last week or so, we've had competitions um, as to who can read the book quickest. Uh, and bringing up the rear is, um, is Dean. How are you getting on, mate? Yeah, I'm not sure how I'm getting on. I've not actually started the book yet, um, which is a no surprise to anyone. Uh, a bit of a slower reader than you guys. Um, but looking forward to the interview, something different. Um, looking forward to, to speaking to Gary and see how um, psychotherapy can be used within um, football um, and how that affects players and um, how he brings that to football clubs. That would be really, really interesting. So a little bit different than, than what we're used to. Um, but yeah, looking to learn on, on Gary's experiences and, and what he's learned from um, talking to professionals within the game. Absolutely. A real, real interesting one. I know this is going to be. So um, without further ado, here's a talk with Gary. Firstly, congratulate you and um, thank you for um, the book that we all um, have received. Some have read more than others. We've had a, a, um, uh, a bit of a challenge as to who can read the fastest in this, unbeknown to the others. So um, I didn't. I didn't win, Gary. Unfortunately. <laughs> How has that been so far, Gary? For you, first book out. Has that been um, a, a success for you so far? Happy. With yeah, you? Um, it's a bit of a weird one. We uh, looked on Amazon tonight, and they've nearly sold out the first run. So I don't know how many. Maybe they only ordered about 15, so I've no idea uh, how many they, they got originally, but it's been really exciting. And the, I think the, the nervousness that I have felt um, about publishing uh, a book and, um, and exposing myself as opposed to the kind of criticisms I feared but wasn't quite sure what would happen. Um, and actually what's come is a lot of very goodwill. And maybe that's the nicest thing. It was the same when I did the radio show on Talk Sport on the Sporting Couch. There was a, just a, a huge amount of goodwill from not only the sporting industry, but also the psychotherapeutic and psychology communities who really think this is a, a vital breakthrough in player care. And I just hope, I just hope that I have lit a match under something that is going to help many, many people. You know, if we just help one person, mm -hmm. uh, get better player care inside their sports organisations or, or player organisations. Do you know what? I think I've done my job. Awesome. Mate, congratulations. Honestly, it's, um, I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed it and take it, taken a lot on a, on a personal level um, as well. So um, I, I really do feel that that will, um, that will be the case. So excellent on that. If, I, if we could, Gary, can, you, um, can we go a little bit more into yourself in regards to what that, that journey to now sort of started out as where did why the in fact psychotherapist uh, versus psychologist probably the most popular question what's the difference um i can tell you the difference between a psychiatrist and a psychotherapist i once asked my boss that at my clinic in london and he said about 200 quid an hour <laughs> uh, 
so maybe I should have been trained as a psychiatrist. Um, okay, sports psychology historically has been very, very concerned with uh, performance, um, creating the right conditions for athletes and players to be better versions of themselves in terms of, of their performance. So it started in the late uh, 19th century when it was discovered that putting a pacemaker inside uh, a race often created better times. So the psychology of chasing somebody they realized uh, worked. So sports psychology has been around, especially in the States where it was it took hold in the uh, early part of the last century. Um, and it was all about, it was all about performance. And then I, uh, trained to be a psychotherapist and I went to a clinic that specialized in sport I had a sports background 25 years as a sports broadcaster and suddenly my clients were sports people and I was thinking hang on nobody's ever really taken psychotherapy into the sector of sport and what would happen if they did and that's kind of where my journey began because when I started poking my nose into the uh, rugby clubs cricket clubs football clubs league managers association jockeys the stories were just horrific. And I just, the stuff that I am doing, although isn't brand new to me, it's certainly brand new to some of these sports. Superb. So, and the, the, the main focus then of, um, of that is to work more with the individual and, and what's important to the individual away from and, and in day-to-day -day life. Is that the, the, main, the main areas that you'll work on? I mean, Asam pre-games I've read, read quite a bit of the book but there's that that's the main theory behind it yes yeah, so the psychotherapy is about the person personal issues personal problems and I think what we're really bad at as a society is accepting that our sports stars suffer all the same anxieties depression all the same psychological pressures that you and I do be that relationships with loved ones mums and dads kids uh, spouses siblings it's all the same um, so I treat the individual with their personal life. And the byproduct of what I do, uh, I discovered was improved performances. I'm not going after the performance times. I'm not going after results. Although that has to be taken into account when you work inside a football club. But ultimately, my, my buzz saying is this. Happier players play better. And happier broadcasters broadcast better. Happier bus conductors go on buses better, they enjoy life more. All of us, if we're happier in our work, are happier in our private life rather, we'll be happier in our work. Superb, superb. And, and, and where was the sport, sport come from? Where did the, the, the um, amalgamation, where was the, the, did the desire to, to move that across into the sport come from for you, for you Gary? Well, I'd worked for 25 years as a commentator, broadcaster, and I was that man who stood in the tunnel doing those dreadful post-match interviews that the Dean will have um, suffered many, many a time. Um, and I just thought, you know what, this, this just isn't real. These answers, these stock answers are just there for the sake of what they're there for. So I, I, when I was holding a microphone and, and doing these interviews, I thought, I wonder what's really going on inside this football club. Um, and I thought, I wonder it would be possible to train, to work for this football club and maybe just influence in the, my relationships with people something that went on on the pitch. And I didn't think that was possible until I trained to be a psychotherapist when I realised that I could have some impact on people's lives. And then I got the opportunity to work inside a football club. And I'm still the only psychotherapist working in, in professional football. 
Um, and then I realized that maybe you can make a difference because what I've learned, and, I, I, and this is brand new to me as well, so I've been on a huge learning curve for the last two years, that any organization, any organization, is only as good as the relationships inside it. And if you can create good relationships inside any organization, you'll do better. It's as simple as that. Fantastic, fantastic. I know we've, we've had that conversation quite a bit, Dean, haven't we? I've, I know I've asked yeah. you many times um, on, the, uh, on the interview front, is it, is it, is it stock answers? Is it, and, and you obviously, majority of the time, that was pretty much the case of, uh, of sometimes, I guess it's the last thing you want to do. And certainly a, a, quite a few of the players tend to, to give that response and you get that feeling. But that was pretty much the case, I think, we, we established, haven't we, over, over that time. And, and it was, I mean, as a player, you were very protected of, of yourself, of your, of your reputation of the football club. And you were prepped by a football club. You know, there's, there's, there's press officers, press agents within a football club and they would mention you or talk to you about not what to, stuff not to mention, stuff not to talk about. If a certain question comes up, I'll intervene. Um, so, yeah, it was, as a player, really just getting through the interview, given the the answer that everyone wanted to hear, which is really not what everyone wants to hear, if that, if that makes sense. They want something different. They want to really understand what's going on, but it's probably not appropriate um, because the clubs don't want that heard, I suppose. Um, so, yeah, it's really interesting and um, it'd be great. I, I, can't wait to, I can't wait for this interview, to be honest, and, and, and ask Gary some, some questions and how, he's, how it's working in, inside a football club in terms of how it's been received by players. Um, because during my career, I used a sports psychologist, but away from a football club um, to keep it independent, to keep it separate. And um, it'd just be interesting to see how it's being received by, by players and, and coaches and staff actually within a football club. So I'm fortunate that I work in both ways, Dean. So I am embedded inside a football club at Oxford United where I work in the first team and I, I, think of, I think of it in terms of thirds. A third of players are really interested in the work I do. Um, a third of players will be really polite to me and um, perfectly nice, but not engaged at all. And a third of players will ignore me. Now, that was when I went through the, the door on day one. It has changed. I think I get more buy-in from more players. But, you know, it's always the players who can't get in the first team and the ones who are always knocking on my door. Yeah. Uh, the ones who are disgruntled about something, the ones who are playing well in the first team, I really hear from. Conversely, I work outside the football club with other football clubs and other professionals who do exactly what you did, Dean. And uh, I'll tell you a little story about, um, I worked with a Premier League player who was struggling to get into the, the first team of a, a very big club. Um, and we sat down, a very famous, very famous footballer. We sat down, I introduced myself, I uh, said, uh, is there something you want to ask? And he goes, how do I know I can trust you? Oh, blimey, what, what a question that is to, on our first ever meeting. But it kind of bears out everything you say, Dean, that there's huge distrust for people like myself working inside a sports organisation. And it's fairly nuanced. Again, this is stuff I, I wouldn't have known except it's happened to me, is that I have to decide, and this is the hardest bit, We write, I write about it in the book, who is the client? Are the football club the client or is the player the client? So when a player comes to me, he's not technically my client because the football club is. 
the, the player's not paying me. The football club is paying me to be their, their psychotherapist. So how it works is this, and this is, this is brand new stuff. This is, this is, this is brand new to, to everybody. You work with the player with their particular issues, but you can't report back because of confidentiality, anything you've done to the gaffer, to the manager, to the first team. But there's a however coming. And therefore, if you think about player care and the confidentiality of working with the player, you might use that information to change the system of a club. So there's two approaches. One is a player to one-to-one -one individual, one-to-one -on -one work, player with myself. But sometimes the system needs changing and challenging. And sometimes you can take information from that, uh, that session with a player and go back to the manager and say, look, I can't tell you where this has come from. But we really need to look at something quite fundamental here. Okay. I'll give you, for instance, I was working for another football club and a player came to see me and he said, it really hacks me off. He didn't use that word, by the way. Um, <laughs> when I am a non-playing member of the first team squad. So he's not been included on the bench. He's, you know, you, 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 I don't know if anybody listening to this will know, but you always travel with an extra player who doesn't play, isn't on the bench because of possible sickness or last minute injury. Uh, and he said, you know what happened the other day? We were, um, we were uh, playing so-and-so. I wasn't on the bench. Nobody told me. Nobody told me. I just looked like an idiot in the dressing room. And I started getting changed. And then the kit man says, you're not on the bench. Um, now, there's, now, I couldn't then go to the club manager and say, oh, by the way, XXX is really happy about this. I went to the manager and said, we need to look at the system, how we communicate with our players if they are not in the squad or they're on the bench. It's not fair. And the manager agreed with me. But I didn't betray the confidence with the player. I didn't say who it was. didn't say how it had come about. This had happened weeks before. So now we have changed in that club I'm working with, where I'm working as a consultant, I've now changed the system. Does that make it quite clear? Complete, complete sense. And I think that that, that really works. And um, I, I'd agree with you. I think the biggest concern for a player would be, well, what's the manager going to think? What's the coach going to think? That if I really open up, will this affect my, my chance of, of starting on a Saturday? Will this affect my career at the football club? I think that's, that's always the biggest fear and probably why I worked away independently from the football club. The only difference from from what you've mentioned there, Gary, is the fact that I've, I've worked with a sports psychologist when I was at my best. I wanted to improve even more. So I wasn't going to them asking, very, very similar, but I wasn't going, I wasn't in a bad place. I wasn't, I was almost right, okay, well, I, I feel good at the moment. How do I fulfil my full potential? And that's why I went and worked with a, a sports psychologist. And it was brilliant. It really was. I mean, I couldn't sit here and say there was anything magical that happened but having someone there to to talk to to listen to my concerns listen to my questions to to calmly allow me to answer my own questions I think that was really important I wasn't dictated to which which I enjoyed um, and it really really helped my career it did you know and, and we kind of veered off in all different things you know it wasn't just about performance it was about family life it was about how I was feeling how I'd prepare how I'd recover afterwards and a lot of the stuff I learned during that period I've carried on into into my life my everyday life so it, it is very, so valuable I would love more players to do it even to just give it the opportunity and 
probably suggest you might agree it may not be for everyone but i'd like everyone to be open to try it i think that would be really good couldn't uh, couldn't agree more as well it's um i mean as the guys the guys probably take the uh, take the the the, the Michael a little um in regards to this is a, an area that has fascinated the life out of me for for probably my entire life to be perfectly fair gary um and it's like the psychology side of things has always has always fascinated me and it's you've opened my eyes as well to to the other side of it i'm like okay psychotherapist what's what's the difference with this and it hits on an awful lot of things that um emotionally have uh, have really affected me over my um, life as well so um if if we we ask this question so interviewing players um asking players different things the one of the, the biggest um uh interests i guess is to understand the concept of how they deal with rejection with different difficult times and i would imagine having pulled from the book and from I would imagine that is something that um, is a, perhaps a, a very, very uh, regular occurrence in regards to um, yourself um, in dealing with them difficult situations. Um, how, do, how do you deal with that? How, how have you dealt with that in the process? Have you got better? Um, where, does, where does that go uh, for yourself, Gary? Well, this, is a, this kind of answers Dean's question because if I was thinking about this as a psychologist, I would be thinking a, a whole different set of stuff than if I'm thinking about this as a psychotherapist. Let me let me try and explain. If I was to um, uh, think about it in a psychological term, I would try and create techniques for a player to try and not concentrate on the rejection, what it means to him. And I would be trying to get him back in training and maybe hit certain targets and much more of a remember remember psychology is a science and that's the thing to remember psychotherapy is more closer to a philosophy now if you think of it though in those two terms i don't want to sound like a tree hugger here but we are all rejected at some stage in our life you know that first girlfriend even from our infant days we have to learn when we are tiny tiny that mum and dad can't be there 24 7 that is a developmental stage so the concept of rejection is built into all of us. And we all have our heart broken when we fall in love with that girl who doesn't want anything to do with us and goes out with your best mate. We all get rejected by our parents who just aren't, can't be around 24-7 for us. So as a psychotherapist, if a player was really struggling with the rejection of not being in the first team, I'd want to know what that meant to him. Why can he not cope with the rejection that is built into the DNA of any sports person. Because if you're going to be a professional sports person, Dean, whoever you, whoever you play for, if you're a golfer, cricketer, athlete, rejection is there. You've not hit your track times. You've not hit the scores as a golf player. You've been knocked out of the tournament as a tennis player. So if you can't cope with that rejection, I'd be asking the question, why? Mm. And start there. Superb. Is that the uh, is that the same process? I mean, and it's always a fascination, and you you, you allude to it a, a fair few times um, with yourself. You know, like the the on a on a personal basis, I'd imagine there's plenty of people you try and try and help that either someone else maybe has put in contact with you or you've worked with, and then then there's that element of of the rejection side of things for you as the as the therapist. 
um, as the as the individual? Is it the same process you go through with yourself in that respect? Well, the other, another key difference between psychologists and psychotherapists, and I didn't realise this until I actually got inside a football club and started working and got some incoming flack, flack from psychologists, was by and large, to train to be a psychologist, you don't need to be in therapy. To be a psychotherapist, you do. Now, why do I need to be in therapy for five years while I'm training? Because anything that it comes my way, any difficult situation, I've got to know what I am reacting to. <clears throat> Excuse me. For example, if a person, sports person, a non-sports person, comes to me with a bereavement, bereavement issues and grief and stuff like that, I've got to know where my stuff is around my grief when I lost my own father. And if that is still out there and I, when I'm listening to the clients, I'm thinking about my own dad and my own grief and my own bereavement, it's not healthy. I have to understand who I am and what I feel. And that's, I mean, this is just a personal view, but because I understand who I am and I've had to do a lot of work on this and spent ridiculous amounts of time and money doing so, it means that I am really an expert at relationships. That's what I've been trained to do. And so though psychology can go some other way on this, psychology is a science. Psychotherapy is more closer to an Eastern religion. Thinking the best of people, thinking that that player that the manager says is a load of you know what, think actually that they're a human being with feelings. Why can't we spend time helping that individual be the best version of themselves. So it's a different frame of mind, different training, different, different in so many ways. I'm not dissing psychology. And the interesting thing about psychology over the last few years is they have realized that to treat an athlete, just like Dean was saying, they need to go towards the psychotherapeutic way of looking at an individual holistically, the whole of them. And psychotherapy, my, my interest as a, a sports psychotherapist all my reading is to do with sports psychology because I have to be able to help a player who just wants to score more goals. So I've had a huge learning curve on the sports psychology side. So in my, my theory is these two are just heading in the same direction. Mm. Absolutely brilliant. We had, we had a conversation this afternoon and you alluded, you, you mentioned there the, the grieving process and we'll come on to sort of the, the, the support currently for, for sports professionals that's out there in particular, obviously, with, with the football. But you, we were alluding earlier, Dean, in regards to the, the grieving process of coming away from that, that. So we're not talking in the game, sort of out of that game, sort of a year or two year period of, of, of feeling that grieving process. I think you could probably explain a little better, Dean, but I think the message I got from, again, the conversation we had earlier on and from what you've experienced is, the link to the two as to how it made you feel um, in in that during that process would that be fair, Dean? Yeah, I mean we were speaking to a, a different player early on, and we were talking about him leaving a certain football club and after a long period of time. And it is it's it's when it, it it's from personal experience when you leave the career or you leave the football industry. I didn't realise it. It's like a grieving period. You need to grieve for it. It's something that you've loved since a very young age it's the only thing you've ever known and you can go back into football you can go into coaching you can go into the media you can go into anything within the game but you can't play again so you you're you're lost you're losing that 
And then when you, you need the chance to grieve that, but then obviously it feels like you've lost a loved one and then you lose the support of your family, which is the football club. So you're losing the loved one that you love and obviously your network, your support network, which was your family of the football club because the football clubs don't really want to know you anymore. You're not an asset to them. They, you've done your bit, your contract's run out. You don't really belong to the club anymore. So you're losing, it's like a double whammy. You're losing two, two major things in your life. And it's a huge, it has a huge impact on you. It really does. And you always obviously speak to people and um, close to you and, and they would say, well, look, you've had a fantastic career. Move on to something else now. You should have really enjoyed it. Be proud of what you've done. Um, life's still good. You've got many, many years ahead of you. You're still healthy. But that's so easy to say when you've lost something that you're never going to get back. Um, and it's tough. It really is. People often, there's a couple of points I'd like to pick up off the back of. And you, what, the, what Dean is talking about is, is known as transitioning when players, whoever they are, leave their sport and, and readjust. But there's another, there's another transitioning goes on, which again, I didn't realise, um, because I also look after all the um, woes of the academy kids coming through. And when they get dumped out of any football club, there's a transitioning process, just, just the same as, as, as when you, at the end of your career, as Dean was explaining. And, on, and bolted onto the back of that is all the parents' uh, hopes and dreams about their young people who then have been uh, kicked out of their academies. So there's, there's a transitioning before a career, before a professional career, but there's a transitioning uh, at the back end of the career, as Dean was saying. But this is where the kicker goes for football. And this is the bit that really winds me up. Um, football clubs do not want, as a general rule, I know this is a generalisation, I'm, I'm, I'm owning that. They do not want certain parts of an individual's character brought inside their organisations. And what I mean by those are what I would call the soft, the softness, the soft skills, the kindness, the generosity, the empathy. Football clubs, I've got no space generally for that, those sort of the qualities that we have as individuals. So players sometimes go, in, um, go into the clubs and act, I think that's the best way to describe it, act the hard man, the tough guy, and they put to one side all those human characteristics uh, because they're not welcome inside the club. Then they transition out of the sport and maybe they got married whilst they were as, as a player. Maybe they built friendships and close ties. And all of a sudden they leave the football club and then they have to decide who the hell am I? Mm -hmm. Because I can't go around being the tough guy. I can't go around being the the big superstar, the big professional footballer. And all these feelings start coming up, bubbling up to the surface, especially, for example, if they have wives who've built relationships on the fact that they were a professional footballer. That's why, in my opinion, the divorce rate for ex-players when they transition out of the game is so high. So these many ex-players get to the end of their career and think, this doesn't work anymore. The, the, the posh term for it is they're maladaptive. Their behavior is maladaptive inside the club. They get outside the club. They try and play the big guy. They try to play the famous ex-player. Doesn't cut it anymore. And all those qualities that make us human, the kindness, the generosity, the thoughtfulness, suddenly they are learning to live with those things again. 
Brilliant. True. Very true. There's so so much um, so much to pull from that. It's uh, as I say, it really is fascinating. I think I guess the, the the question from from my eyes is, and I would imagine it's why has this not happened previously? Because you when as you as you explain as you do, um, it, it becomes so apparent to so many, and I can't see any reason why anyone would say say differently. In your eyes, why why do you think we it's been so late to the party in regards to to this side of things, Gary. I know that will probably fuel you to, to to do more, which you're you're doing. But what 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 do we what do you think that that's um, that we've been late to the party in regards to that? Well, I think it's a sad indictment, especially in fo football, that we we haven't got more people like myself um, in the industry. And I'm, I'm determined to create training courses to create more people like me and teach them what I have learned over the last two and a half, three years. Um, look, if, you, if you've worked inside football, this is a truism. There are very few football managers who would allow somebody like, my, like me complete and utter access to every area of their club. Because a lot of managers just are very, very concerned about their power and control about running a football club. I'm very lucky Oxford United, Carl Robinson, just says, go where you want and do what you want. I mean, I check in with him a lot, a lot of the time and say, this is what I'm doing. He really says, don't. But I can't imagine many football managers who just say, yeah, do what you want, speak to who you want, or hold more knowledge about my players than I do. I mean, that's, that's an extraordinary feat of, of, of a football manager. And ultimately, as, as it was explained to me, and I write about this in the book, that any manager... Um, thinking about bringing somebody like myself in would probably have like all of them the short termism of thinking of i lose the next six games i'm gone and so are you that's not that's what one manager said to me mm. i don't really care about this stuff i'm not prepared to invest in this stuff because i lose six games i'm gone and then everybody's going to laugh at me thinking oh i had a shrink in the building as well so this idea of toxic masculinity i'm afraid runs through football still so what is toxic masculinity? Well, it, it reverts back to the word vulnerability. And in football clubs, people think the word vulnerability means I'm weak and I can't play football and I'm useless. No. Vulnerability means putting your hand up and say, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know how to head the ball. I don't know how to kick it. I can't pass properly. Uh, Gaffer, I'm not sure what I'm doing. I don't understand your tactics. Uh, I know you, you, you might give me these tactics on a whiteboard or a video screen I don't understand them and we are awful in my opinion especially in the professional football of bringing up young players who can say excuse me I don't know what I'm doing can you explain it again because this isn't going right or you know what I'm really playing badly and I want to do something about it everyone keeps quiet a conspiracy of silence which I have um, tried to break over the last two and a half years we're getting there slowly there ain't many football clubs where that exists I was going to ask you, Gary, is that, is that something you're trying to implement with the players to, to ask questions? Because I know it's very much encouraged at a, a really young age, um, you know, under 10s, 12, 13s, that you're encouraged to ask questions of the coach, encouraged to ask questions of the tactics, to, to be involved in decision making. But I just wonder when it becomes really important to result based, when it becomes a career for someone, 
and you feel that fear of, well, if I put my hand up, if I speak out, again, is this going to jeopardise my career? Am I going to play on a Saturday? What's the manager going to think of me? So I just wondered how that's been um, received, really, because I think it's, it's brilliant. I, I mean, I would have loved, as a player personally, I would love to have done that more. I'd love to have gone a amount of times. I mean, I played at every level. I'd love to. There was probably a hundred times I could have put my hand and gone, not quite sure what you want from me, Gaffer. Or, I, I'm, to be honest, I don't quite agree with that, if I'm honest. Or if someone, a manager's having a go at me and, and demonstrating on, you know, a tactics board or a video, go, I don't actually agree with what you're saying, actually. I, I saw it this way. I would have loved to have done that many times. But you go to say it, you go, no, actually, I just want to play Saturday, so I'll probably just keep my mouth shut. The manager's still going to play me. I've not caused that much damage. I'll just play better next Saturday and won't say anything. So I think it's great if you can implement that. And how do you learn, Dean? How on earth do you learn to be a better player or better at your job um, if you don't have those conversations? As I said earlier on in this conversation, any organisation is only as good as the relationships inside it. And those relationships, first and foremost, are based on communication. You know, how if you and I are playing in the same football team, the most important thing for you and I is to communicate each other. When you bomb forward and you say, hey, cover me at the back, hopefully I'd know that. But it's helpful if somebody just points it out to you. Mm. And we have, you know, Oxford, we, we, we know we have a very, very quiet team. And it's really interesting to know the young ones coming through are even quieter. And there's oh. a very good reason for that. That's something called the net gen generation the generation coming through now who've been brought up on on the on mobile phones and smartphones are even worse than that than the the sort of 23 24 year olds we've got a real problem about communication and the ability to communicate with each other so we've got no lead you know we find it very hard to find leaders i was working in schools before i went into a football club and i had two anxious kids in the classroom and to communicate with each other six feet apart, they were texting each other. So what does that say about the future of communication? What does it mm. say when we, you know, if you want a date, you go onto Tinder and you swipe left or right? What does it do? What does it say when the, statistically now the way that most girls and boys dump each other is by text or WhatsApp? Yeah. It's a very different world than the one I was brought up in. Exactly. Another question. Sorry, sorry, Gay. In terms of, 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 of that happening and players feeling comfortable enough, I, I would feel that would come down to trust because I've had many a manager that comes into a football club, is a new manager, new approach, new voice, and go, look, look, lads, I want you to be part of this. I want you to voice your opinions. I want you to tell me what you think. The first time a player does it, gets shot down. Who do you think you are? I'm in charge here. We've just lost a game then it just kills it straight away. Every other player goes, oh, I'm not doing that, then no chance, because he's just been dropped for, for the game next week. So I think it could be really, it could work brilliantly. And I think it, it definitely can. We, I, when I worked under Nigel um, Adkins at, at Southampton, we were encouraged to do that. We would have uh, team meetings. Um, he would lead the team meeting. He would ask our opinions. And we'd always finish the meeting with three positives, three negatives, three things we can improve on. But it came from the players. You know, every player, he would choose a player randomly, pick a player, Dean, Ricky, Adam, and you'd have to say, you'd have to speak. But he would encourage our input. Now, were the players totally honest? I can only speak for myself. Yes, potentially. Um, but I think if you can really gain that trust from a manager where you really think, no, he does want me to speak openly here. 
And it always has to be done in the right manner. You can't stand up and start swearing at the manager and calling this and calling that because that never works. But I think if the manager can really, or you can really feel the trust of the manager, I think that's when it can really work well. So what you're describing is something called psychological safety. Uh, and any organisation that has psychological safety will have the space for anybody to stand up and say, well, actually, I disagree with this. So in any organisation or corporate sporting anywhere I work, work with, the first concept that I will work with the CEOs is to make the place psychologically safe. Not easy, as you say, Dean, in a football club. It's, it's blooming hard. But what has happened is when I went into the football club and I heard that conversation and the manager maybe gave somebody a hairdryer moment, I would pull the manager on the side and said, what do you think you achieved? And we've had some real toe-to-toes, mm. but at least those conversations are taking place. Yeah. And the manager is able to self-reflect by saying, that is what I think will be the outcome of that interaction. It's a very different football club now. Now, you know, people say, well, how do you measure the success of, of what you've done? Well, we've done all right at Oxford. We could do better. Uh, and there are so many different reasons why a football club might be successful or unsuccessful. But I would like to think, maybe I'm deluding myself, by the way, but I'd like to think the club is more psychologically safe now than when I joined. Brilliant. How, how long have you been there now, Gary? How long have you been with, with Oxford now? Uh, this is uh, two and a half years, my third season. Third season. Okay. No, it's, 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 it's absolutely brilliant. And, and I think, like you say, and I think unless you unless you start these things, which again, absolute credit, unless you, unless you make the noise and, tr and try these things, um, which obviously you're doing in Monument. And this, as I say, the book is, is, a, is another huge step forward. Um, so, I mean, we're, we're, all, we're all behind it. And I, I just, like Dean says, I really do hope that more um, from all sports, but, you know, certainly with what we know from, from the football side of things, that more people... Um, come 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 on board with that and, and as Dean says just try that process um, and um, the the one thing I wanted to touch on in from from the book Gary if it's okay not that you're gonna um, share the individual's names we're not going to get uh, we get we we've had a, had a game which I'm sure you're gonna was that was that part of the um, uh, was that part of the idea behind it that you're going to get people thinking oh, it could be this person could be that person that obviously was part of the process the thought process. No, no, never, never. <laughs> and um, the what are we two, one, two, three, four, five areas under the categories shame, anger, fear, jealousy, and envy, and love was is that the five um, most common things that you're 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 picking out from um, or that are popular within uh, the sport world? There is that is that, are they the common areas? Like if we were if I'm going to look at where I'm going to improve. Um, and and take from that, they're the areas I should be looking at. Would you would you say? I know. It's well, there are there are five <clears throat> human emotions that are very very strong, um, and they are usually somewhere in the background, running almost like an app or a piece of software that's running the whole time. And if we can just put that, uh, maybe disable that app or help somebody understand what that piece of software running is, we can often help them get around some of their problems. You talk about the identity of the people in the book. Um, well, confidentiality is absolutely paramount in my work. So that all the characters are, uh, are composites of hundreds of hours of therapy I've done with all sorts of people, uh, because they have to be, and even the, the publishers, Penguin, 
their lawyers check that none of these none of these people really exist. But the bit that is absolutely true is my experience as a psychotherapist working psychotherapeutically. So those experiences are absolutely 100% true. The people have been um, melded together and mixed together with sports clients, non-sporting clients. Uh, the names I can share with you are the people who've appeared on my radio show on Talk Sport because they've been very generous to come forward and, and share their personal lives. So uh, Sam Allardyce, Ian Holloway, Keith Gillespie, Becky Adlington, Steve Harmison, Marcus Truscothic, Nigel Owens, a rugby referee. And uh, those, those stories are in the public domain, so I, I can share those names. Fantastic, Gary. As you're, as you're saying that, do you tend to find, um, and I think you, you touch on it a little bit there, and certainly we'll see, see what you say first, but do you, do you tend to find any sports are predominantly better or worse in regards to, to the, the clients that come forward to you? Uh, are any sports more proactive or sports individuals uh, more proactive in coming forward to you, Gary, than, than other sports? Um, I think football is, in terms of a team sport, is miles off. Uh, I think cricket's pretty good. Um, I think as an industry, I think horse racing has a long, long way to go. I mean, I heard this is an extraordinary story that hasn't even broken in the newspapers, but would you believe that when you move a horse from one stable to another stable, they have to have blood tests to make sure and make sure they're not carrying equine flu. But during the pandemic, the same testing doesn't happen for stable lads and girls and jockeys. You know, some, some, something is just not right there. An industry that cares more about the horses than they do about the people mm. who work in that industry. So those are the sort of things where I go, well, how, does, how does that work? And that's my job to, to if we, with, the, with the people I work with in the racing industry, say, come on, that, that's not right. There's something that's gone wrong there. Absolutely. No, it's been, it's, uh, we say, I really do appreciate, um, appreciate your, your time, Gary. Um, and uh, hopefully everything sorts itself out with, um, with, uh, with what, what's happened uh, the previous there. Um, anything else uh, to add, Dean, at all? Anything else that, um, in, in fact, just before you jump in, Dean, the one, there is one thing from, from me. Uh, and how would, if I am, I mean, I think this is probably vital to be fair. If I am that football player, that sports professional, and I hear this, I read the book, um, how do I take the step? How do I take the step? I look at, and I think, Gary, I, I must work with you. How, how do I do that? And, or, or like, in, is there more people around? Is that an easy process? Yeah, um, I have a website, which is garybloom.co.uk. Um, look, it's not for everybody, and, I, you know, I, I'm realistic. I live in the south of England. There might be players up in Scotland and, and overseas or, or, or anywhere. I think you, first thing I do is ask yourself, is the club psychologically safe? Which goes back to a previous question. Can I put my hand up and say, look, Gaffer, I don't know what I'm doing. If the answer to that is no, I would step outside the club, reach out to the PFA in football's case and try to seek some sort of counsellor or, or therapeutic help or go on a, something called the counselling directory and find a psychotherapist. Uh, there are sporting chants. Um, there's several organisations who are very, very good. I think more could be done. I think a whole lot more could be done. But I am the only person I know of working in the way I do. Um, I just hope more, you know, in 10 years' time, I hope, 
people will look back to the to the writing of the book and saying it was about time and that that was the start that was the spark that lit the fire i really hope that's the case and i'm happy to train people and we're, we're devising courses now to do that um and i and it's great when i hear for a couple of lads at our club training to be counselors and sports sports um sports psychotherapists and counselors it's it's a growing industry if i was if I was in coming to the end of my time as a player and transitioning out of sport, I would seriously look at the psychological, different psychological uh, routes to working inside the industry. I think this is a huge growth area. We are spending millions of pounds on players and not looking after them. We are looking after their, their physical their needs, mm. their tactical needs, their, um, their, their ability to, to manipulate football, the psychological side is woefully sure, woefully, we need to do more. I was going to ask you that, Gary, do you think it would be, because I, I don't know what you, you feel, but from my experience in football, there's a reluctance for football clubs to entertain the idea of bringing former players back, um, former players around the club to be to help influence younger players. I go back to the fact that I went back to Leicester when I left Leicester for, I went back for six months and worked as a, as a mentor to, to the, to the under 23 players and went and spoke to them. And I was an ex player that they knew, um, but a bit of a safety network for them that they could, I could kind of bridge the gap between them and the coach. Um, I ended up training with them and ended up playing with them. But I just think there's a, there's a huge gap within professional football for ex players to help the next generation. And in terms of, what you've mentioned there in terms of them training and being able to do potentially what you've been doing after a long period of training. But do you think players would be more, current players would be more open to speaking to a former player that they know that's been trained by someone like yourself that's been on the course that has that information, has that knowledge? Do you think they'd be more open to, to opening up and, and to speak into that player because they can be very um, relatable and they think, well, actually, you were in this situation as well. What did you do? Then you can come from a, an area of experience and then you can come from an area of, of being educated to try and help them. Does, does that make sense? It does. And you, you open up a great question about do ex-players have more agency uh, inside a football club than somebody like myself? Well, one of the problems, I mean, I don't know because I've never played the game professionally, um, which has always been a regret of mine. Um, but one of the things that I, I really struggle with is, look, I work, I work for an agency on a clinic in Harley Street. So you can imagine what some of the players think about that or their fantasies about me um, when, I, when I turn up inside the football club when they've come from very, very different backgrounds. I think as a psychotherapist, it's really helpful to be able to deal with everybody from any different background. Um, and I would say that if I was training to be a psychotherapist, if I'd been a professional footballer in a previous life, I would want to try and broaden out to work with as many people as possible. If, you're, if you've been a player and you go back into football clubs, what else do you know about the world? And my training meant that I had to work with people when I, when, when I first started who came from very, very humble backgrounds people who couldn't afford psychotherapy. I was actually offering my services for nothing because to be a psychotherapist, you need the equivalent of flying hours, just hundreds and hundreds of hours of therapy. So I was working with people who were unwaged. So it's a very different set of 
I'm not really answering your question. I know, Dean. I think I, I, I think it's important to get as broad a range of, of clients as possible. Uh, but I hear what you're saying. And the other bit that I didn't that you didn't ask me, but I'm going to answer anyway, is there are tons of psychologists working in football, but only at academy level. Okay. Very few work at first team level. And I think I'm the only one. And people say, how the hell did you get into a first team organisation? Well, luck, I would imagine, is, is probably the answer to that. You go to the academy. We ran a conference, the first ever sports psychotherapy conference we held last February, just before the COVID lockdown. We had it at the Kassam Stadium, Oxford United. We had loads of people working in football clubs there. Loads of people. How many people working in the first team at those clubs? Zero. Just me. Interesting. Really interesting. Absolutely. Absolutely. It is fascinating. We will... Um... Hopefully, uh, hopefully, Gary, we'll um, we'll continue. I'll be I'll be firing questions across all the time now. There, uh, I'll be <laughs> filling the uh, the the LinkedIn. No, it's been honestly. Thank you, thank you so much for anyone that hasn't um, already. Um, that includes you, Dean. You haven't completed the book. Um, I haven't yet. I will do that. I will do. Make sure make sure you um, you do get yourself a copy. Um, I've, there's been a few recommendations out of the way. It's, I'm it's on audio book as well, Gary, isn't it? Yeah, I can't. Uh, I can't um, uh, promote the narrator for the uh, for the audio book too much. But um, apologies for that. <laughs> the, uh, no, one of the most difficult. One of the most difficult eight hours I've ever spent in my life sitting in an airless room trying to read my own book. <laughs> <laughs> you take that for granted, don't you? Yeah, the, the the process of uh, of that, of course. But no, seriously, huge respect, um, huge, uh, wishing you all the best of luck um, with, with continued uh, further success. And uh, it's, already, it's already making a noise, it's already making a difference. So uh, long may that continue. And, um, and if there's ever anything you need from any of us in regards to, to feedback, anything we can help, you know, um, I, I, hopefully we can, um, we can do that as well. But I really do appreciate your time, Gary. Pleasure. All the best. Thank you, Gary. Gary, take care. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Hi, all. It's Liam here. Just jumping on to thank today's guest, Gary Bloom. Thanks to Penguin Random House for sending advanced copies of the book to the Life Outside of Sport team. Keeping Your Head in the Game, Untold Stories of the Highs and Lows of a Life in Sport by Gary Bloom. Is available now in all good bookshops through Amazon and an audiobook version is available on Audible. Thanks to my co-hosts Dean Hammond and Lewis Harrington and a special thanks to you for taking the time to listen to today's episode. If you like what you heard please subscribe to the podcast through Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you download your podcasts. If there are any topics or subjects that have come up in this or any other episode of Life Outside of Sport and you'd like to reach out to us please visit lifeoutsideofsport.co.uk where you'll find all of our details and our social media links. Thanks again for listening. Take care. Bye-bye.